teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. In fact, is there any question more important in all the world than that question? Maybe you're here today and that's a question in your own heart and mind. What does it take to be right with God, to have life after death and eternal life now? How does that occur? You, don't, you, you think I'm going to get wild, don't you? You know me well. Oh, well, that could have been a good thing. Anyway, what, <laughs> thank you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a problem, however, with this question, because the man asking it didn't want the answer, and that's the challenge that you and I face as well. Sometimes we ask that question, but we really don't want to hear the answer. What we want is we want an answer that will come back that justifies me where I am already, that makes the things that I'm already doing be good in God's eyes. So if we're really going to examine this passage of Scripture, which is a familiar one, we're going to look at the the parable of the Good Samaritan as we're continuing our, our B series, and today we're talking about befriending. If we're really to understand that, we need to first look at ourselves and ask God to show us, do I really want to hear your answer? And that's true about a whole host of questions. One of the things I want to challenge you to do in your life because I'm challenging myself to do it in my own life, is to pray very honestly, God, would you show me what in my heart and life is in opposition to you? Where am I trying to justify myself instead of listening to what you want to tell me? Where am I choosing to ignore maybe things that I know in the back of my mind. I'm trying to rearrange the information, rearrange the scriptures in some way so that it fits my lifestyle, my choices, my preferences, my opinions. Well, would you break through that? Because I want to know truth. The lawyer, we discover in just a couple more verses, was seeking, number one, to test Jesus, and number two, to justify himself. So he asked two questions. Number one, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in a few verses later, he asks, seeking to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Very important questions. Well, as we've been in our B series, we've been, we've been looking at what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to believe in him, what it means to become like him, because that's what we're called to do. And, and last week and, and today, we're looking at befriending. And I really like the word befriending, not just because it starts with B and it fits in my series, um, although that's a good thing as well. But the scripture, the command in the scripture is that we are to love others as Jesus loves us, right? Now, here's the challenge with that, at least for me. I can say I love someone by simply in my own mind saying, well, I don't hate them. I don't dislike them. I think occasionally pleasant thoughts about them, but that's not really loving them, is it? To say I befriend you involves action. It's a verb. 
Now, love is a verb as well, but we tend to oftentimes think of it as a noun, sometimes as an adjective, and all kinds of other things. I really don't know about language. That's why I should never go down this road, because I'll just get myself in trouble. Um, But we don't think of it oftentimes about what it really is. To befriend someone means that I'm purposely going out and connecting with them, and that's what Jesus did for us. He befriended us. He came into our circumstance, into our world, into our life to show us what the Father is like. And that's why he has given us this commandment in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus' words are incredibly important because when we hear the world around us say that Christians are just hypocrites, we need to examine, number one, if what they are saying is true, and the way that we will know whether it is true is whether or not we're fulfilling this commandment right here, whether we're loving one another as the body of Christ, as he loves us, and loving others as he has loved us, as he has befriended us us. So to befriend, it means it's a personalized love in action. There's a second word that isn't listed here. In fact, it's not, it's a a principle that we see in the scripture, uh, but it's not a scriptural word. It's the word incarnation. Um, Those of you for whom English is your first language, you've probably heard incarnation, maybe you have an idea of what it means. Um, For others, it may not be a word you're familiar with. It comes from Latin, and it literally means in the flesh. The incarnation, from a theological standpoint, is when Jesus Christ, God's Son, took on flesh. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Became, he was fully God and fully human. That is the incarnation. He became like us to show us the Father. But here's something that's even further amazing. The fact that God would become like us to befriend us, to show us how to know him, how to um, come into a relationship with him, that in itself is amazing. But he's done more than that. Do you understand that right now there is an incarnation of God in this world and it is you and I, the church? He has given us his Holy Spirit so that we would be his fleshly presence here in this world. That's why this commandment is so important. The way that people are going to know what God is like, the way that people are going to understand what Jesus is like is through us, through the way that we live. And that's why we see that there is a great connection between love and obedience. Jesus told the lawyer, do this and you will live. Jesus tells us, his disciples, that if we keep his commandments, we prove that we love him. That's why befriending, loving others, and becoming like Jesus Christ have to go together. Love and obedience are like two sides of the same coin. If I'm not becoming more like Christ and loving like Christ and allowing him to transform me, then when I say I love him, my acts reveal something different. 
We are meant to be His presence. He has commanded us to love others, those who are like us and those who are not, in the same way that He loves us. And the reason why this is so significant is because God is calling us to use love to break down pride, to break down selfishness, and to demonstrate the humility that is needed to come to Christ. The lawyer was prideful. He wanted to justify himself. In essence, what he did is he pulled out, I know you've all been wondering why this is sitting here. He pulled out the ladder of comparison. Okay? Every one of us has one of these. All right? We have a tendency to look at ourselves, and what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're a little bit higher than other people. Okay? It's true. Just admit it. All of us have it. They're different. You know, we have different ladders. We have different people that we want to compare ourselves to, and we do it all the time. Think about how you compare politicians, for instance. I don't, does anybody do that? It seems like whenever I look on Facebook, there's a constant comparing of politicians. I don't know where that comes from. It's built in human nature. We compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to other Christians. We compare ourselves in little ways about how they do something and that we think we do better. Sometimes we compare ourselves in a way where we're trying to, to look at them and think, I could never be like them. And we diminish the value that God has placed upon us. We all have a ladder of comparison, and that's what the lawyer was doing. He was, in essence, saying that if you open up a ladder really fast, you cut yourself and you start bleeding through a sermon. So, anyhow, cool. <laughs> wow. Guys, I want you to get this. I'm bleeding, so you'll get this, okay? <sighs> yeah, yeah, really good. Anyway, where, where was I? He's comparing himself to everyone else. And so when he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what he's really asking is, what must I do to prove that I'm okay? And we all ask that. Now, here's the problem with the ladder of comparison. Let's say I am slightly higher up than somebody else. We need to understand that this ladder, which only goes up about a meter and a half, really doesn't make a whole lot of difference if you're trying to, wow, God, the Lord hath provided. It really doesn't make a whole lot of difference if the destination is the moon, right? If you're trying to get to the moon, bless you, my brother, wow. True friendship right there. All right. If you're trying to get to the moon, what does it, difference does it make if you're a meter closer than someone else? None. And the truth is, none of us are any closer. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. What God wants us to do is take down that ladder of comparison that is a symptom of our sin. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they began comparing themselves against one another. They began blaming one another. And what Jesus Christ has done is he stepped into our existence, into our brokenness. He took on flesh and he took that ladder and he laid it down and made it into a bridge to bridge the separation between sinful humanity 
and a holy, perfect God. And that's what he is calling us to do as well. So we need to examine ourselves. When we're comparing ourselves to someone else, I can tell you pretty much without exception, it's sin. It just is. And we need to recognize that. That is not what he has called us to do. So that's the context in which he is giving this instruction here to to the lawyer. Behold, the lawyer, verse 25, behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's important to recognize who this man is. As a lawyer, he's not an attorney like we might think of in English. He was an expert in God's law. Okay, he was a scholar, a theologian is what he was. So he answers correctly. In fact, the passages that he quotes from in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 give a great expansion on what it means to love God and to love others. In that passage, it will talk about justice. It will talk about caring for the poor. It will talk about being intentional and setting aside part of the income. In, in the case of, uh, of Israel, it was setting aside part of the fields to be able to provide for the poor. It involved a great deal of love and action. And he would have known this. But again, he didn't really want to hear the answer. He wanted to justify himself. And so Jesus goes back and confronts him with the things he already knows. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered correctly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now what Jesus is doing is he is showing the evidence of real faith. He's not saying that if you um, do enough good deeds, you will earn your way up the ladder and be acceptable in my sight. No, the works that you do are the evidence that you're trusting in me, God, and not in yourself. And that's the picture we see all through the scripture. Love proves that our relationship with God is real. We are not saved by our works, but our works reveal if we are truly saved. One of the most familiar passages in in the Bible, John chapter three, I want you to turn there if you have your Bibles and we'll put it up on the screen, um, talks about God's love for us. And I wanna show you something beautiful in the midst of this. Because loving God means that we receive his love gift of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it says in John 3, 16, the most famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave, he befriended, he put his love into action. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness. People loved themselves. People loved their sin, their selfishness, 
their self-righteousness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. See, that's what's about to happen with this lawyer. His deeds are about to be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Now, here's what that means. When we trust, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he changes us and he fills us with his love because love comes from God. And then in God, in his power, we are able to love others. That demonstrates how it works. It is the evidence that our love is real. In the same way, the evidence that our faith in Christ, our love for Christ is real, is obedience. I already mentioned this one. But you cannot separate the two. When we are disobedient, we are showing that we really love ourselves rather than God. It shows that we don't take God's commands seriously. We're not concerned about grieving the Holy Spirit. We're simply trying to make excuses and justify where we are. But secondly, there is a cost of true love, and that is sacrifice. True love costs. It cost Jesus his life. He laid down his life for his friends to prove how much he loved us. And so the religious leader, the lawyer, then goes on and says this. Let's look back at Luke chapter 10, verse 29, and pick up the story. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus was challenged by the lawyer, a man who knew the law of God forwards and backwards but he really didn't want to hear the answer. He simply wanted to put himself a little higher up on his own ladder of comparison. 
Jesus used this powerful story to cut through the heart that had grown cold of the lawyer, and we don't know the end of the story. Perhaps those words penetrated through his pride and broke in in a way that allowed him to see truth, to see his own sin and guilt, to come to a point where he could be saved. We don't know. We don't know the end of the story. But we see some great contrasts. And Jesus, who is a, who is a master at telling a story, picks the most unlikely scenario because he's talking about a, a, a Jewish man who goes and is, is robbed. He falls um, in, into a, a path where he's assaulted and robbed. And those who are supposed to be um, the best among us, the priest and the Levite, both of which are religious leaders in Judaism, they don't have time for him. They would have had to get their hands dirty. They would have become ceremonial unclean. Maybe they were on their way to the temple. Maybe they had an appointment. Maybe they were going to go speak somewhere. They had other things on their agenda, and they passed by on the other side. But then Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Now, now for us in our context, we, we need to set it a little bit different because it's hard for us to understand the conflict and the friction that there was between Jews and Samaritans. So let me give you a couple other comparisons that you can maybe put into your mind. Um, for those of you who are familiar with, uh, with America, it would be Republicans and Democrats, okay? Yeah, <laughs> scary, isn't it? Or, or maybe a little more accurately in, in the context because it's not just we, we really don't like what you think. It was deeper. Maybe it was closer to Palestinians and Israelis to where their natural inclination was to distrust one another. It's in that context that he says, but the Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan went and worked. And what did he do? What he shows us, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us a glimpse of himself. He's showing us what he has done for us. The Samaritan Samaritan shows us how to live out God's love and befriend others. The Samaritan does three things. He sees, he has compassion, and he acts. You see, the priest and the Levite, they saw the man, but that's as far as it went. They did not have compassion. They did not feel, and so therefore, they did not act. But the Samaritan shows us what Jesus does, and it gives us instruction about what we shall do. We are to look with Jesus' eyes. We are to look around us and recognize that if God has given me his Holy Spirit and he has given me the assignment of loving others, of befriending others, that means he is going to give me regular, frequent opportunities to demonstrate his love. And the only way that I will um, encounter those opportunities is if I am looking for them, if I see with the eyes of Jesus. Secondly, we need to ask the Lord to enable us to feel with his heart, to feel and value others where they are the way he does, and then to act with Jesus' strength. Look, feel, and then act. 
And again, this isn't what saves us. It simply proves that, that our relationship with Christ is real. It's authentic. If we help someone but don't take time to look at the person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love will be cold. If we look and feel but then don't do what we can to help, our love is cheap. True love does both. So Jesus gives God's answer to who our neighbor is. Not just the people who are like us, for whom we have a natural attraction and affinity, God calls us to love our enemies. In fact, Jesus um, expounds on this in Matthew chapter five and also in, in, in Luke, he commands us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us so that we may prove that we are sons of our Father in heaven. It is in loving our enemies that the evidence that we truly love God comes out the most. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. He tells us to be perfect in our love as the Father is perfect. And to follow His example, how did He demonstrate His love for us? In that while we were sinners, while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. So here's a place to begin. At least for those that maybe, maybe there's someone in your life that you really have a tough time with. They irritate you, they annoy you. Maybe you feel genuinely like they're an enemy. Let me challenge us to pray this. God, enable me to love that person and you put in their name as you have loved me. Now that's incredibly important because we didn't deserve God's love. We tend to think of ourselves as being pretty good, but we're not. God, enable me to love them as you have loved me. And then, Lord, I'm going to make a promise. I covenant to pray for them because I want to become more like you. You see, the focus isn't really on them that they deserve it. It doesn't mean that what they did is okay or excusable, but it means I want to live like Jesus. So therefore, I want him to change my own heart. I want to pray for those who persecute me. I want to love those who are different than me. I want to care for them. Now let me try to take what we looked at last week and this week, and and this is a little choppy and I apologize, but I want to try to just give us some action points. Um, This was part of the message last week and I didn't get anywhere close to finishing it. So what we've looked at, both in the parable of the Good Samaritan and what we looked at last week, is that we're called to befriend others as Christ has befriended us. And, and to do that, love must be a person to us before it is an action. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan saw a person lying there in the gutter. The priest and the Levite saw a problem. And that difference in what we see is incredibly important. We have to allow the Lord to change us in order for us to see as he sees. To befriend like Jesus, we must see others with his eyes, spend time with them, and give grace to them as he has given grace to us. 
Because again, it is grace that God designed to cut through pride, selfishness, and sin. So how do we put befriending into action? Let me just give us some some action points. Number one, be proactive. This means we take the initiative. Begin to ask the Lord, Lord, show me what can I do today to befriend someone else, especially someone who does not yet know you as Lord and as Savior. And begin to, I I challenge you, I dare you to begin praying that. Lord, show me who you want me to befriend today. Help whoever that is to become a person to me. Help me to see them with your eyes. You see, love comes from a mind full of someone else. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But the only way to love is to not think about self because selfishness is the opposite of love. So love comes from a mind that is full of other people, that's focused on other people, ultimately that's focused on Christ and how he loves us. True love is never selfish. It is the opposite of love. So the first step to be proactive is we have to, to start looking. And, and I put a prayer in here that I want to put on the screen, and I, I want to just, I'm just going to ask us to, to pause right now and pray this together. You can pray it quietly right where you are if you're ready to. But this is what I, I'm asking the Lord to do in my own heart and life. Lord Jesus, I believe that because of my faith in what you have done on the cross, you have placed your Holy Spirit inside of me. Therefore, open my eyes to see others as you see them. Open my heart to love others as you love them. Open my hands to serve others as you have served us. I want to show my love for you by loving others today. I want to see what you see. I want to feel what you feel. I want to do what you do so that others may see you through me. Lord, would you help us to desire that? Would you help us to want that? Would you help us to pray that? And then, Lord, to take our prayer and in faith act in obedience to you. Be proactive. Secondly, be positive. See others with the eyes of Jesus and remember that where they are does not describe their worth. If we look at them like we, like we looked at the call of Matthew last week and Jesus saw Matthew, he saw a man named Matthew who was at a tax collector's booth, he did not see a tax collector. It's what he did. He saw a man. And he saw with eyes that saw what the new creation in him could be when he chose to follow Christ. That's what we are to see. Beyond that, 
The reason that we should be positive is, I don't know about you, but I read to the end of the book, and let me give you a secret. In case none of you have read to the end of the book, God wins, okay? Yes, he wins, and yes, he should get a round of applause. He wins. We look at our life and our world, and it's so often it is easy to become overwhelmed by all the things that we see that are wrong by all the brokenness that we see, all the confusion, all of the division that we see. And it's easy to become discouraged. But the the truth is, God is bigger than our problems. He is bigger than the divisions that we see in this world. We have every reason to be positive, to be encouraging, to be hopeful, to be joyful. I was doing some study this week, and, and and it really surprised me. I was looking at some different things in worship, and do you realize that we're instructed to shout in praise to the Lord 40 times in the scripture? He's saying, get excited because he wins. Man, I almost got expressive there. I told you, I don't get very, I don't do that very often, so this, that's me stretching. Okay, be positive, and let that flow out in everything that you do. Let it flow out in the things that you put on Twitter and on Facebook and the conversations that you have. Be positive. Don't be overwhelmed by the tide of the world. Remember that God is working. Also, be patient. Allow the Holy Spirit to work. Too oftentimes, we become like the religious Pharisees in that we subtly expect people to change their behavior before they come to Christ, it will not happen. Or if it does, they're in even greater danger. Because the only transformation that happens in your life and my life is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. So don't expect people who do not yet know Jesus to act like good church people, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means exactly. But don't expect that. But do expect the Holy Spirit to work. Pray for them. It is the Holy Spirit, the script, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, and conviction of judgment. He is the one who brings conviction upon a heart and life that brings them to the point where they're willing to say, God, I need you. It is our job not to bring condemnation but to be that bridge that helps them see what Jesus Christ has done in our own heart and life and what he offers to them. We are to be prayerful and to truly believe that God changes things. And in the patience, there's, I'm gonna take just a minute and I know I'm gonna run over, but too bad. That's all I have to say. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting passage where the same question that we see in the Good Samaritan, the same question is asked in Mark chapter, excuse me, <clears throat> Mark chapter 10, verse, um, verses 17 through 27. Jesus again, he, he, verse 17 says, and he's setting out on a journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question. Now here's the thing that I really love about Jesus. This is um, the story, if you're familiar with the scripture, it's the story of what's called the, the rich young ruler. And the end of the story is the young man goes away sorrowful 
Because what Jesus tells him to do is to give away or to sell his riches and to follow him. Because he recognizes that he's trusting in his own resources rather than in God. And so Jesus, because he is God, knows that this young man is going to reject him. But I want to show you something. Verse 20. Jesus gives an answer similar to what he gave to, to the lawyer in verse 20. He says, and he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Knowing he was going to turn away from him, Jesus loved him. Here's the thing. We need to love other people whether or not they ever respond to the gospel. Love them where they are. Otherwise, our love is conditional, and it's not like God's love. We need to love them like God loves us. And Jesus goes in, and the disciples ask later about how, how then can anybody be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that brings us to the fourth one. Be powerful. Give grace to others. Act as Jesus' presence in this world. Grace and gentleness can conquer sin and pride. It is the instrument he fashioned to be able to rescue us. Be prayerful. God is the only one who brings salvation and transformation. It is his work. Be personal. One of the beautiful things that we see in every encounter with Jesus is how he intimately is with individuals. He takes the time to get to know them, to listen to them, to be with them, and we must do the same. Seven, be practical. Jesus calls us to be his hands and feet. So we need to ask him, Lord, show us how we can serve the other person in their need, in their want, in their hopes, in their dreams. How can we care for them? And eighthly, Finally, be present. And in our day and age, this may be one of the most difficult things because we are so distracted. It is difficult to really be engaged with an individual. Jesus shows us that love takes work. We have to slow down, put ourselves in the other person's shoes, think about their needs, their hurts, their brokenness, their dreams, and love them as he has loved us. Jesus told the lawyer, not only are we to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, but we have to put it into action. It's not merely a mental acknowledgement. If it is real, it must be lived. And when we choose, as the people of God, to live that out, his promise is all people will know that we are his disciples. Lord, would you help us to live it? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would take the gaps in what was said and that your Holy Spirit would work in hearts and lives and you would challenge us right where we are those of us that
Lord, maybe are sheltering things in our own heart. We're not willing to really examine your truth and examine what you are calling us to, ways to be obedient to you, to, to become like you. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction in our hearts and lives, not so that we feel guilty, but so that we can become more like you and accomplish your purpose. Lord, would you give us eyes to see others as you see them? Would you give us a heart like yours? Lord, would you help us to be willing, starting right now, to be looking for those you are calling us to befriend as you have befriended us? Father, we want to live as your presence here in this city, in this world. So we ask that you would work for your honor and your glory, we pray. Amen.